Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach and I'm reading books from the blacklist for the carnal elements. When I put my sensor spectacles on, I single-mindedly focus on bodily appetites. In this podcast, I read out rude bits and rant about the bad sex. So far, there's actually more swearing in my podcast than in the books to date, but I'm not giving up hope just yet. Six books down, 12,485 to go. The book in my last episode, Catch-22, scored high in censorship bingo. And I have high hopes that Revolutionary Road, published in the same year, might also be full of bannable material. It's not famous for being banned in Ireland, but there are too many censored books for all of them to be notorious. This book lives on my bookshelves, but I've never read it till now. I purchased it years ago because I had seen the 2008 film adaptation. It's the story of Frank and April Wheeler, living in the suburbs with two children, where she performs domestic drudgery in their cute little home while he commutes to the city for his dull office job. Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet played this couple in the film, kind of like an antidote to their Titanic performance, I thought. I'm quite sorry I hadn't read this book before. It's a powerful and gripping story about marriage, pregnancy and gender norms. I have to be honest and say that the claustrophobic atmosphere created by Yeats may not be helpful in these lockdown days. If you're looking for a diverting read to distract from limited movement and stasis, this is not the book for you. If you're looking at your significant other, wondering how you ever managed to shack up with them, this book will either confirm or dispel your worries. But if you have problems no bigger than the other person not cleaning the breadboard, you can explore your relationship woes through the drama of Frank and April's marriage. Singletons can read this book to feel smug about not being shackled to another person, because the picture of marriage Yeats paints is truly bleak. This is a book about toxic masculinity and how gender expectations poison relationships. If you're looking to learn about self-delusion, lying and cheating, this is the book for you. Now, you might need a drink to go with all that heavy stuff. And this book is stuffed with booze. Frank Wheeler's favourite tipple at home is sherry. But they drink whiskey, martinis and brandy. In fact, they drink a lot. Frank has boozy work lunches. 
then nothing can be discussed at home until he has his first drink. One of the most memorable scenes in the film, for me, was April bringing empty bottles to the bin at the side of the road. It's that combination of domestic drudgery, which was beautifully shot, and also the spectacular amount of empties that they had produced. The scenes of entertaining at home in this book are so sharply observed that it's almost cruel. They serve each other meat paste on crackers and sandwiches. It's both pathetic and ungenerous, all done for show and formality while pretending to be informal. There's no joy in this food or drink. Its presence does not cheer anybody up. Yeats was himself an alcoholic, and I think his twisted relationship with drink strips the pleasure out of its consumption. I will not advise you to eat and drink in the spirit of this book, because you'd be absolutely miserable. Suffocating in Yeats's suburbs is maybe not the most cheering during this lockdown time, so if you do have a sherry, toast all the cosy warm things about your own domestic space. But now, let's get on with the smut, and hopefully it'll be a little bit more cheering. I made it to page 18 before I found content that a censor would deem obscene or indecent. This is the first time in my podcast so far that the bannable content features the body rather than sex or romantic interests. So on page 18, Frank recalls a memory from April's school days that she once shared with him. And it goes from page 18 to page 19. But the school smell made him think of one particular time she had told about, a morning in Rye Country Day, when a menstrual flow of unusual suddenness and volume had taken her by surprise in the middle of a class. At first I just sat there, she'd told him. That was the stupid thing, and then it was too late. And he thought of how she must have lurched from her desk and run from the room, with a red stain the size of a maple leaf on the seat of her white linen skirt, while thirty boys and girls looked on in dumb surprise how she must have fled down the corridor in a nightmarish silence past the doors of other murmuring classrooms, spilling books and picking them up and running again, leaving a tidy, well-spaced trail of blood drops on the floor. Mentioning periods brings reproduction to mind, which implies sex, so it definitely merits a ban. Menstrual blood would have upset censors who preferred books that ignored the physical messiness of the body. Now, there is actual sex later on in the book, but it's very much implied or referred rather than described. Frank sleeps with a co-worker, Maureen, in her apartment, and this is the description from page 98. Then they were on the couch, and the only problem in the world was the bondage of their clothing. Twisting and gasping together, they worked urgently at knots and buttons and buckles and hooks, until the last impediment slipped away, and then in the warmth and rhythm of her flesh he found an overwhelming sense of this is what I needed, this is what I needed. His self-absorption was so complete that he was only dimly aware of her whispering, oh yes, yes, yes. God love poor Maureen, doing her best to have a good time on her own, she must be faking it. This sex scene shows just what a self-absorbed prick Frank is. He's really only shagging Maureen because he had a serious fight with his wife and has been sleeping on the couch. So it's a consolation shag for him, proving to himself that he's still got it. 
It's not unusual, of course, for characters in novels to behave this despicably, but I think it's very brave of Yeats to be honest about Frank's self-absorption. He's explicit not about the sex act, but about Frank's emotional poverty. Not many authors clearly describe the shabby reasons for their character's behaviour like this. Yeats doesn't let Frank off the hook, but skewers him on it. It's even more remarkable because this book is semi-autobiographical. Was Yeats this horrible? And worst of all, did he know it? I wonder what sort of book his wife would have written. And Frank appears even more repellent when he arrives back to April in the suburbs after his afternoon delight with Maureen. For the first time in days, she wants to talk to him, but he kisses her furiously to shut her up. She protests, but he keeps going until she gives in. And then it gets really awful. He suddenly realises he should have a shower because he's just had sex with someone else. So he stops what they're doing and goes off to wash himself. Then he shags his wife. Frank uses sex to divert himself and others from difficult emotional issues. The problem is it's hard to know what April as a character really feels because her voice, her point of view, is confined to just one chapter. The third last one, pages 300 to 311. So this is a book about marriage from the perspective of Frank Wheeler. He's not nice and Yeats mercilessly delineates why he's not nice. Frank had fallen for April because she was a first-class girl in his rating system and none of his previous girlfriends had been that pretty or sexy. None of them had given him, quote, a sense of unalloyed triumph, unquote. His feelings for her from the beginning are as much about possession as love. But he's not the only unpleasant man in the book, unfortunately. Another marriage is explored through the Wheeler's neighbours, Shep and Millie Campbell. Shep lusts after April, and they do have uncomfortable sex in the back seat of a car on page 261. And the back seat was where it happened, cramped and struggling for purchase in the darkness, deep in the mingled scents of gasoline and children's overshoes and Pontiac upholstery, while a delicate breeze brought wave on wave of Steve Kovic's final drum solo of the night, Shep Campbell found and claimed the fulfilment of his love at last. So as you can tell, sex in Yeats's narrative is about character rather than smut, so it's neither explicit nor hot. And none of this sex is about April. It all happens to her in the narrative. As previous sex scenes had been from Frank's point of view, this is from Shep's point of view. Throughout the book, she is described as remote, aloof and apart, unknowable, unknown and deeply desirable because of that. The other significant theme perhaps the very heart of the narrative, is abortion. Since the censor banned sex education material that talked about contraception, we can be sure that this part of Revolutionary Road was entirely unacceptable. An abortion is much more than a subtext or implied. April actually discusses with Frank the tools for a DIY abortion. In a wildly transgressive move, Yeats places the abortion storyline within marriage as part of family planning rather than a response to a crisis before marriage. Shortly after their marriage, April gets pregnant, which is about seven years too soon according to their plans. 
References to abortion are becoming increasingly common in American fiction of this era, but this book describes the actual mechanics and process. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here on page 49, April explains to Frank what she wants to do. It was simplicity itself. You waited until just the right time, the end of the third month, Then you took a sterilised rubber syringe and a little bit of sterilised water and you very carefully... This sentence actually ends in an ellipsis as we wait Frank's reaction. Frank himself is deeply shocked at April's plan. And this is from the next paragraph. Even as he filled his lungs for shouting, he knew it wasn't the idea itself that repelled him. The idea itself, God knew, was more than a little attractive. It was that she had done all this on her own, in secret, had sought out the girl and had obtained the facts and bought the rubber syringe and rehearsed the speech. That if she'd thought about him at all, it was only as a possible hitch in the scheme, a source of tiresome objections that would have to be cleared up and disposed of if the thing were to be carried out with maximum efficiency. That was the intolerable part of it. That was what enriched his voice with a tremor of outrage. Here, he's alienated from her, not because abortion actually upsets him, but because she has asserted her desire to terminate the pregnancy and she has the knowledge of how to do it. Not many books, even today, feature a married woman who wants to terminate a pregnancy without a health or wealth reason. April doesn't give compelling explanations for her horror of being pregnant. She just doesn't want it. Frank doesn't want it either, but he doesn't want her to make the decision. So he persuades her to go ahead with the pregnancy, and when she finally capitulates, this is his reaction. And it seemed to him now that no single moment of his life had ever contained a better proof of manhood than that, if any proof were needed, holding that tamed, submissive girl and saying, Oh my lovely, oh my lovely, while she promised she would bear his child. God, what truly toxic gender roles he's been trapped in. 
I hate Frank Wheeler as a character, but I'm in awe of Yeats for being so honest about this. The phrase toxic masculinity wasn't coined until the 1980s, but Yeats knew exactly what it was and how to describe it decades earlier. Fast forward two children, and some years later, and April is accidentally pregnant again. Once again, she's distraught, but this time not for her own sake. She had hatched an incredibly brave plan to save their marriage, her husband and herself. The family were to emigrate to Paris, where she would work, and he would have time to find himself and reignite the genius they're both convinced lies dormant within him. It's a win-win plan. She gets to have a job and escape domestic prison. He gets time to himself and freedom from the office job. Obviously, pregnancy scuppers the entire plan, and so she wants to terminate. But again, the true nature of Frank, cowardly, controlling and sly, reveals itself. He doesn't want to go to Paris because her vision of their life there terrifies him. He could not imagine how she could work while he didn't, and he strongly suspected that he was not that clever at all. He knew his hidden depths would not manifest themselves if he hung around Parisian cafes. So the truly sinister part of the book begins, his campaign to manipulate her to keep the pregnancy. And he does actually call it a campaign. He deliberately adopts certain mannerisms, techniques. He seduces her and confuses her and flirts with her in a way that he knows that she finds attractive. He takes her out to dinner more times than they've been out for the last two years. And then finally, he stays at home from work to ensure that he can consolidate his victory, as he puts it. It's cold-blooded and nasty, and it works. He bamboozles her enough that she passes the three-month gestation mark without trying to induce an abortion. He is deeply relieved that the Paris plan is off the table and that April will be pregnant again. Now I know what you're thinking. There's no smut, sex and pregnancy is coercive, and the blokes are horrible. This sounds like a hellish read. And when I read this, I was horrified by Frank and Shep. But Yeats shows us how they were made, how their self-delusions were built on social norms, as well as their own unique personality flaws. You do feel compassion for these useless men, but Yeats is too clear-sighted to excuse their behaviour. But the best thing about this book is that it's so very well written. I don't know how Yeats managed to combine a dreamlike atmosphere with great tension, but he does. Sometimes his observations are so close to the bone that I had to put the book down and take a breath. And I'm just going to read you a piece from page 13 that really stuck in my mind. This is when Frank is watching April perform on stage at the very beginning of the book. Nothing had warned him that he might be overwhelmed by the swaying, shining vision of a girl he hadn't seen in years, a girl whose every glance and gesture could make his throat fill up with longing and that then, before his very eyes, she would dissolve and change into the graceless, suffering creature whose existence he tried every day of his life to deny, but whom he knew as well and as painfully as he knew himself, a gaunt, constricted woman whose red eyes flashed reproach, whose false smile and the curtain call was as homely as his own sore feet, his own damp climbing underwear and his own sour smell. 
when I read this, I actually swore. I put the book down and I walked around the room a bit to get over it. His language is incredible. He can take you on this emotional roller coaster of longing, desire and despair all in one sentence. If you're in the right sort of emotional state for reading a book about toxic masculinity and manipulation, I can't recommend it highly enough. But when I read this as a censor, looking for sex, reproduction and bodily fluids, the parts of the narrative around gender and sex really come to the fore. It has been argued that Revolutionary Road is an indictment of suburbia and its narrow-mindedness. But I don't think it's primarily about neat houses, commuting and strained drinks parties with annoying neighbours. It's about the desire of Frank to control and possess April's body. It's there from the beginning when he sees her in the bar and classifies her as a first-rate girl. Of course, the worst thing about this toxic masculinity is that it not only destroys April, but himself as well. His need to dominate her does not make him happy or fulfilled. He knows it isn't even what he really wants. But he must do it because taking another path is unimaginable. To do otherwise would give her a personality that he can't even conceptualise. His self-absorption is so complete that he cannot allow her to have ideas separate to his own. When she devises the escape plan, he can't see a world beyond a nasty office job and suburbia. It's not really suburbia's problem that Frank is trapped in a bind of gender norms. And the whole narrative depends on April's body, or rather, how Frank gets April pregnant at the wrong times. Although he doesn't want children, he wants the social status of a settled, successful marriage and proof of his masculinity. I think this is justifiably a classic, both for its language and the novel way it approaches the personal entanglements of domestic life. And it's so much more than what I've outlined here because I've left out loads of characters and half the plot. It really was a shame Irish readers couldn't purchase this book until at least 1974 when the ban expired. Though, honestly, I can't say for sure if it was available because the DIY abortion content is so explicit that it may have been suppressed under other parts of censorship legislation. Maybe I'll find out when I can leave suburbia and travel to a research library. But let's abandon deeper engagement with the text and get to the fun part. Censorship bingo. How did this complex, powerful critique of marriage and masculinity score in Rude Bits Bingo? The first box to tick off is breasts. Even when there's no other reference to body parts, boobs always get a mention. I'm beginning to think they're a synonym for sex in general and for genitalia in particular. Then there's infidelity. Frank, April and Shep all cheat on their spouses. There's menstruation. As I pointed out at the beginning, I think this is the very first thing that the censors would have found and hated. And finally, there's abortion. Abortion is, as I said, one of the most important parts of the book and runs from beginning to end. So Revolutionary Road gets an extremely low score of 4 out of 25 in censorship bingo. And honestly, if you want entertaining sex, you will not find it in this book. This book may not be rude on a checkbox bingo system, but I think it's quite clear it horrified the Irish censors. Discussing the mechanics of abortion was pretty bad, 
but that Frank deploys moral arguments against it without believing them would have given them a fit of the vapours. The nuances of Frank's character and April's situation would not have impressed censors whose worldview was distinctly black and white in matters of sexual and reproductive morality. Next episode features quite a mental book about misbehaving nuns that only a subset of history nerds are familiar with. It was published in 1836, but banned in 1964. Why was a 128-year-old book about nuns banned? How rude can it be? Join me next time for more diligent, dirty-minded reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.